a few years ago, like I said, Nat was reading this book by Gail McDonald. Gail McDonald is a pastor's wife and a Christian author. Her husband, uh, oh shucks, what's uh, McDonald's name? He's pastor out in Lexington for years at Grace Chapel. Can't remember his name, doesn't matter. Uh, his wife Gail wrote this book called High, Priv- High Call, High Privilege. And Nat read this quote from it. It said, untended fires soon die and become just a pile of ashes. Untended fires soon die and become just a pile of ashes. Like, that's a powerful quote, like, uh, on, on both ends. Now, what Gail McDonald meant, her point was, some fires in our life need to be stoked up. If I'm at a campsite in New Hampshire in late October and I'm sleeping by the fire, it would be a good idea every hour or two for me to get up and, like, throw another log on that thing and stoke it up. Like, if that's my warmth in October in New Hampshire, in the White Mountains, like, I need to make sure that that fire doesn't go out. In your spiritual life, there are some things that you need to stoke up. What are some things in your life that you need to keep stoked up? I don't know what they may be. They're different for everybody. Now, that's what she meant. But then as Natalie read that quote, I also thought about the flip side of that. There's some fires in our life that need to be allowed to burn out. Some things, we just need to let them burn out. Um, and so I thought about, uh, Carson shared a story on the radio, so this is fair game. I can talk about Carson while he's not here at church. They were, they had a burn pile the other day down on the Cape at their house, uh, down on the Cape. And, uh, it was really windy and it had been really dry and the fire got out of control and, uh, and the fire jumped their fence and behind their house is just a big, uh, forest of like pine trees and brush and junk. So the fire jumped their fence and then it looked like it's going to jump the fence to, and go into the neighbor's yard beside. And he starts panicking. And uh, actually, he's kind of cool about the whole situation. But I believe his family members start panicking. Uh, Miss Alicia is like getting the Holy Spirit, praying up on the patio, like, Lord, like, please don't let us burn up the entire cape. They had to call the fire department. The fire department comes out, put the fire out. They couldn't have been nicer. And they were like, don't worry about it. I mean, the takers had done everything they were supposed to, had a burn permit, everything. Like, they weren't breaking the law. Uh, the fire department was like, look, it's like the fourth or fifth one we put out today. Like, everybody's, it's fine. Like, it's no big deal. This is why the fire department exists. There are some fires that we need to allow to just burn out and not jump the fence and not burn up everything around us. What are some things in your life like, what are some fires you need to stoke up? And what are some fires in your life that you need to allow to burn out, to die out, to become, like Gail McDonald said, just a pile of ashes? You know, as much as, you know, I hear people in Charlestown talk about karma all the time. People talk about, maybe you talk about karma. I don't believe in karma. Uh, I think that is an idea from another faith. Uh, I believe that God operates by grace, not by karma. But I do believe that the scripture talks about sowing and reaping, which is pretty similar to karma. For the most part, what we put in the dirt and water and till and give sunlight to, it does end up producing a crop. There are some things uh, that if we sow, then we reap. Now, God doesn't have to operate by that law, and that's why I don't believe exactly in karma. But this idea of like stoking what you stoke up will burn and what you let go will burn out is that idea. It's this idea of like, listen, what we sow, we reap. What we stoke up will burn. What we let go will die out. And there's some things in our life that we need to stoke up and some things in our life that we need to allow to burn out. And this book of James, as we're looking at the book of James in the next few weeks, uh, will address some really practical areas of that. So today I want us to do just a couple of things. We're going to introduce this series. We're going to talk about the book of James. We're going to talk about the author. We're going to talk about when this book was written. How many of you are nerds who like when you read a book of the Bible, you're like, now when was this written and where does this fit in with the rest of the Bible? A few of you like that. Uh, so for you nerds, you're going to love this today. I'm a nerd like that too. We're going to look at when it was written. We're going to look at who it was written to and why it was written. And then we're going to read, we're going to get all this from one verse. So you ready? Here we go. James 1.1, if you got a Bible. Uh, often overlooked is this first or second verse, first or second verse in a lot of books of the Bible and the letters. Uh, but here we go. James 1, 1, it says this. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. We'll start there. That's how we're going to introduce the book. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. 
Now, how are we going to get all this information from this? Let me tell you how we're going to get it. Number one, let's talk about James. We know the author because he says it. But the question is, which James? Because the New Testament actually mentions four Jameses. The first James is a guy named James, the son of Zebedee. James, the son of Zebedee, was the brother of John, James and John. These were two of the early disciples of Jesus. They were actually called the sons of thunder. It's the greatest nickname for two guys ever, the sons of thunder. Uh, James, son of Zebedee, is uh, one of the closest friends of Jesus. Like He gets to be kind of the insider. He's the one who doesn't, uh, his brother John doesn't abandon Jesus at uh, at the resurrection. Their crucifixion. I mean, this James, son of Zebedee, is really, really close. And James, son of Zebedee, becomes a leader in the earliest church of Jerusalem. Like, after the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost and there's 3,000 new Christians, it is this James, James, son of Zebedee, not the author of James, spoiler alert, uh, who becomes a leader in the church. However, in 44 AD, James, son of Zebedee, is martyred. He's killed. Uh, pretty early, Jesus, we'll see this at the moment, died and rose in around 30 AD. So 15 years after that, this earliest leader in the church, James, son of Zebedee, is killed. The second James mentioned in the New Testament is James, the son of Alphaeus, also a disciple. There were two disciples named James. There were two disciples named Judas, as a matter of fact. This James, though, is son of a guy named Alphaeus. He, he's also known, this, is, this, would, this would be like, this would be some of our luck. History tells it calls this guy James the Less. Like, who wants to be called Howard the Less? Drew the Less. Nikki the Less. But that's how this guy is known, the Less. Because James, son of Zebedee, would be James the more prominent, and James the Less, or James the Younger, uh, would be the other one. It's, there's so little known about this guy. He's mentioned so rarely in the New Testament that it's highly unlikely that this is who wrote this book. The third James mentioned in the New Testament is James, the father of a guy named Thaddeus. Thaddeus also goes by the name Judas, not the Judas who betrayed Jesus. There were two disciples named Judas. And uh, this one also goes by the name Thaddeus. And so it seems unlikely that Thaddeus' dad, who's only mentioned one time in the entire New Testament in the book of Acts, would have written the book of James, which leaves the fourth James mentioned in the New Testament. And this, I believe, and unanimously theologians believe and historians believe this is the James that wrote the book of James. It's James, the half-brother of Jesus. Now, how does Jesus have half-brothers and sisters? Because Mary is Jesus' mom, but Jesus was um, conceived by a virgin when the Holy Spirit came on Mary. And so Joseph, though he helped raise Jesus, was not the biological father of Jesus, okay? And so... Uh, Mary and Joseph, after, after Jesus is born, Mary and Joseph, then the Bible tells us consummate their marriage. And they, over the next few years, have several children. Jesus has some half-brothers and half-sisters. We know this from the New Testament. And one of those half-brothers and sisters, probably the oldest one, is this guy named James. Now, after James, son of Zebedee, is martyred in 44 AD, James the half-brother of Jesus, this one becomes the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And so here's a little bit that you want to know about this James. Because this James has quite the life transformation. This guy grew up as Jesus' little brother, but he does not believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, maybe that's because it would just seem inconceivable that your brother would be the Savior. Like, how do you live up to that? Like, James, why aren't you more like Jesus? Like, maybe he's resentful. James, why can't you build a table like Jesus? James, why don't you get your homework done like Jesus? Like, he does not believe that Jesus is actually, in fact, the Lord, the Christ, the Savior. In fact, there's a moment early in Jesus' ministry where Mary... And Jesus' brothers and sisters, Jesus is drawing quite a crowd, and they don't like it because some people are starting to say he's crazy. And if he's crazy, it's a reflection on their family. And so they come to a house where Jesus is doing some ministry, and they're like, hey, Jesus. They actually go to some other, they're like, hey, send Jesus out here. We want Jesus to go home. Jesus is cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs, and it's time to wrap this thing up. And so they go in, they tell Jesus, and Jesus says, um, They say, your mom and your brothers and sisters out there. And Jesus says, who is my mom and who are my brothers and sisters? Those who believe in the kingdom and are following this message. That's my real family. And so James did not believe 
at all that Jesus was the Christ until Jesus dies and rises again. And then when James sees that, there's something that happens in his heart and in his life that forever changes him. And he becomes a disciple. And he actually becomes like one of the apostles, though not one of the twelve. He believed. And then in 62 AD, so he becomes James, son of Zebedee, is martyred in 44. After James, son of Zebedee, dies, James, the half-brother of Jesus, becomes the head of the church in Jerusalem for 18 years. And then 18 years later... Uh, James, the brother of Jesus, is martyred. And so the timeline, 44 to 62, works that this is the James that's written. The timeline doesn't work, actually, for it to be any other James, and we'll see that in a moment. So he says, James, servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why would you not throw around the weight that, like, you were Jesus' brother? Like, how many of you are name droppers? Nobody. I'm the only name dropper in the Howard. I've heard you name drop a time or two about some famous people you ran into. Some of you are name droppers. You're just not telling. You're being humble this morning and modest. I would name drop. If I were James, I would totally name drop. I'd be like, hey, this is James. And if you're not going to listen to what I'm going to write, I'm just going to tell you, I'm Jesus' baby brother. Like that whole savior thing. Like he's my big brother. I grew up hearing the same bedtime stories as him. And like I saw all this stuff. But he won't name drop. He won't throw around his weight. I think I would be like, in the intro, I'd be like, James, half-brother of Jesus, leader of the church, Christian extraordinaire. I think that would be how I would lead. But he doesn't. He's actually, it seems to, to me, that he's so humbled by his previous unbelief that he won't do that at all. And so he just says, James, servant, bondservant, slave, James, slave of God and slave to the Lord Jesus Christ. This one I didn't believe in, my brother, now I'm his slave, and I want to be a servant, and Christ means Savior. In other words, the Lord Jesus, my Savior. He's so humbled by his previous unbelief, and he understood that serving God and Christ would be his deepest, fiercest identity, that, and that he owns Jesus' lordship. And that's all he's going to leave with. I'm James. I follow the Lord Jesus. There's like a double-edged sword to that, by the way. In in one sense, like, we understand that it doesn't matter, like, Jesus, you know, God doesn't have any grandkids. Like, I don't get to be part of God's family because my mom was. And so it doesn't matter how much access we've had to God or church or the gospel. Like, still, we have to know Christ. It's also good news that, like, the gospel is for everybody, Even the one who didn't believe in Jesus, though he maybe was closer to him growing up than anybody other than mom and maybe dad. Even this one didn't believe and he still could be welcomed as part of God's family. There's people all over our city and our community and our world who think that they could never come to be part of God's family because of how bad they've been or how little they believed or how close they were and yet were so far away. And the good news of the book of James is that God invites all kinds of people into his family, regardless of what we know or don't know, where we've been or haven't been, how close we grew up hearing the message of the gospel or how little we grew up hearing it, we can still be part of God's family. And so that is who wrote the book. Now, let's talk about the setting. The last part of the verse says, to the 12 tribes and the dispersion, greetings. Greetings to the 12 tribes and the dispersion. Uh, Now, I am a big Bible nerd. In the sense that I believe it, I I believe it, but I also don't want to check my brain at the door to follow Christ. Like if it doesn't work intellectually for me, then it can't work in my soul. And so I never try to disprove the Bible. Like I really believe 100% it's true, but I love it when history or archaeology or literature confirms it. And as much as I've studied, I've never found history archaeology, geography, not confirming it. And that is a beautiful and helpful thing for me. I was telling Nat this morning, here's the thing I love about the New Testament, especially like after Jesus rose from the dead and the 50 years after. You get the story of the book of Acts, which is just a biography of the early church and of the Holy Spirit. But then you get these letters from Paul and James and Jude and uh, Peter and John that will then overlap on the timeline with the book of Acts, right? 
And then you get historians like a Jewish guy who was not a Christian named Josephus and some Roman political leaders who we still have their archaeological, uh, we have their writings uh, of antiquity and their their writings will overlap as well at times. And then you get archaeological digs because the Middle East is the most explored uh, archaeology site in the world today. And so you get this beautiful overlapping area of the book of Acts, the letters, secular history, and then archaeology. And it helps us pinpoint things really easily. And so I want to show you the James timeline, if I can. I think you can... You can, I know you can narrow down when James was written to within four years. And I would say, we can say almost the exact year it was written. So Jesus dies and is resurrected in Jerusalem in 30 AD. Okay? Next significant thing that happens in the book of Acts is in 34 AD, there's a deacon in the church named Stephen. And Stephen gets stoned to death. He gets martyred while Paul, Saul, is watching. We know this happened around 34 AD. It could have been 33. It could have been 35. But it has to be in about that window of four years from Jesus' resurrection. The next thing that happens is in 44, James, the brother of John, James, son of Zebedee, is martyred in Jerusalem. Stephen is martyred in Acts 7. James is martyred in Acts 12. So if you're reading it, you're seeing from Acts 7 to Acts 12 about a 10-year gap of history that's happening, right? The next major thing that happens is in... Uh, let's just skip ahead to AD 62. We see that James is martyred in Jerusalem. Sorry, that's a little blurry. We can share this with you later if you're a nerd and want to see it. Uh, so James is martyred in Jerusalem. In between that, there's a very significant event that happens that forever shapes uh, the history of the church. And it's the reason that unless you are of Jewish descent today, it's the reason you're sitting here. Because in AD 48, there was something called the Jerusalem Council. For the first time, after the church scattered in Acts 7, between Acts 7 and Acts 15, in that 14-year window, non-Jewish people begin to come to faith in Christ. Gentiles begin begin to come to faith. And they're so culturally different. They have a totally different set of values. And so in 48 AD, there's this thing called the Jerusalem Council, where the leaders of the church throughout the Roman Empire gather together and they say, what's going to be the bare minimum? Are these Gentile Christians going to have to be circumcised? Are they going to have to make sacrifices? Are they going to have to do all this different stuff? And it's in 48 that the culture of the church begins to shift from being primarily Jewish, it begins to become increasingly Gentile, to the point that by the, when you get to Acts 28, the church is becoming so Gentile because the Jews have rejected the gospel message. So we can assume because of the thing that when James says to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, he's talking to Jewish Christians primarily. We can assume that James is written between 44 and 48 AD. It's the only time that this makes sense. It's the only time. I would say it was written in 45. So James, this is crazy because Nat and I were talking this morning. I tend to read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then Acts happen chronologically. And then I read those letters like they happen chronologically too didn't. James is written before Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If you were an early Christian scattered throughout the Roman Empire after Stephen's death in 34, you would have gotten access to the book of James in 44, 45. And this would still be a decade before Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John at least were written. That's pretty incredible to me. This would have been a lot of Jesus's words fleshed out for people who are following Jesus as a scattered people. So the audience is Jewish Christians scattered after Stephen's death. It's going to have some really Jewish terminology. Are you open in that? Bless you. That's amazing. Thank you. If you need a bottle of water, by the way, they're out there if that'll help you. Teresa's already set. She's good. Um, so he says to the 12 tribes and the dispersion, that's, the, like, that's Israel. He's writing to God's people. But here's the crazy part of what he says. He's not just writing to Jews because by 45, the church is Jewish and Gentile. The church is becoming Jewish and Gentile. Um, And when he says to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, what he's saying is, it doesn't doesn't matter our cultural upbringing. I'm not writing just to Jewish people. He's saying I'm writing to the people of God scattered throughout the empire. Why is that important? Um, 
You feel in the air? Bonnie, you feel in the air? It feels nice, doesn't it? Uh, I love it. I was wondering, like, I wanted to say something, but I didn't want to be a distraction. So thank you, Nick. You read my sweat beads. Um, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Uh, so often today, you will hear people talk about uh, the nation of Israel, the geographical nation of Israel as a favored people. And they are a favored people. The Jewish people are a favored people. God made a never-ending covenant with them. But when Abraham became part of, when he entered into covenant with God, which was essentially the birth of the Hebrew nation, the Jewish people, that was a community of faith. The Bible says that Abraham, Abram believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. So in a sense, we are the new Israel. The church is the new Israel, the people of God. Why is that important? Because Christians aren't a racial group. We're not a racial group. There's a narrative in our culture a lot of times that, um, that Christians are one type of whatever, and they're not. That we're monolithic, and we're not. We're the exact opposite. Christians are the exact opposite of that. So why is that? Here we get the half-brother of Jesus, who has been born again, though he once doubted, 15 years after the resurrection, writing to scattered Jewish Christians about living with kingdom values. There's five implications of that, and I think they're really important, especially since next week is the 4th of July. It's going to be really important for us as Christians to understand this, because there will be churches all over America next week that will sing very patriotic songs, and pledge their allegiance to our nation. And listen, I love America. It's the freest country in human history. It's got its problems. It's got, it's got a lot of problems and a really checkered past. And some of the freedoms and privileges and comforts that I've been able to enjoy and my people have been able to enjoy for 400 years, not all people have been able to enjoy for 400 years. And we got to own the good and the bad. But we also understand in James's word that we're part of something different And that's really important for us to remember next week. If you have a barbecue or you watch fireworks or whatever it is that you do, I hope that the words of James when he says, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes and the dispersion, greetings. I hope that the practical implications of that will stick for you. And here they are. Number one, where we live as Christians is not our home. This is important. Where we live as Christians is not our home. We are a scattered people. The people that James is writing to were, for the most part, all from Jerusalem. But a death occurred, a leader in the church was killed, and they all had to scatter because they were literally being systematically hunted out by a guy named Saul, who would become Paul after he met God on the Damascus Road. So they're all scattered throughout the Roman Empire, primarily in the cities going from Egypt and maybe just west of Egypt to what's today modern Libya up to what is today modern Italy. And so where we live as Christians is not our home. We actually have a dual citizenship. Christians need to remember, we have a dual citizenship. Uh, I don't know if any of you have two passports. Uh, That would be awesome to have two passports. I have friends who... Uh, I have a friend named Nico from, uh, he lives in South Carolina and he's French and he and his wife had a little boy named Colby and Colby, because his dad is a French citizen and the mom's an American citizen, the little kid literally got two passports. I was like, oh, it's amazing. I was slightly jealous of Colby. As Christians, we are dual citizens. Philippians 3.20 says, our citizenship is in heaven and from there we await our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. In our house, I want to tell you, we celebrate the 4th of July. I will tell you also, in our house, we have celebrated July the 1st, which is Canada Day. In our house, we have celebrated June 6th, which is the National Day of Sweden. We have Christian friends in Sweden. And on the 6th of June, in the past, we've celebrated National Day to identify with them and remember that they're living as missionaries there. We've celebrated May 5th, Cinco de Mayo. We celebrate Juneteenth. We've celebrated March 17th. We celebrated Canadian Thanksgiving. One of the greatest meals I ever had in my life was on Canadian Thanksgiving, which is in October. As a lot of you know, we do these things as a family and have done these things to identify with Christians here and abroad. We can celebrate July 4th, but I want to tell you, this isn't our homeland. This is not our homeland. 
That's important to remember. We have a dual citizenship. It's not that I have to betray my identity as an American citizen to follow Christ, but I hold it loosely because I have this citizenship in another kingdom with another king, a better king and a better kingdom. And when I see brokenness in this kingdom, it reminds me that this kingdom is not my forever home. This kingdom is. And this king is good. And he laid down his life for his citizens. Number two, if where we live as Christians is not our home because of our dual citizenship, therefore our actual homeland, the kingdom of Jesus, gets our first loyalty and deepest identity. This is really important. Um, Our identity as a Christian, uh, and this is a narrative... um, I had a mentor named John Randalls. He died a few years ago. John Randalls could, like, he would go preach in churches and preach at camps. And I would always be like, man, John Randalls is the most incredible communicator I've ever heard. And after hearing him like six or seven times, I learned, John Randalls, you could hand John Randalls a Bible and be like, John preached five sermons. And he could just pick up a Bible and like turn it to wherever. And he would preach like the most unbelievable five sermons you ever heard in your life. Um, and they would inspire you and challenge you. But after hearing John do this a few times, I finally realized, like, John was only saying about five or ten things. He just kept saying them over and over, and he could find those things anywhere in Scripture. And it was, like, so deep in his soul that he could find the gospel anywhere. He could find discipleship anywhere. He could find all these things anywhere. If there are ten things that have sunk deep down into my soul, one of them is this. It is that our actual homeland gets our first loyalty and deepest identity. Our deepest identity, it gets our deepest identity over our nation. I am a Christian before I'm an American. I'm a Christian before I'm an American. I just am. Uh, it gets our deepest identity over our region. I'm from the South. It's where I was born. I am a Christian from the South. I'm not a Southern Christian. I'm not ashamed of my Southern heritage. I don't wear it like a badge of honor. It's part of who I am. But it's not 51% of who I am. I am a Christian. That is my deepest identity and first loyalty. It's deeper than our race. When James writes this, he's writing to some dark-skinned Jewish Christians. He's writing to some light-skinned Jewish Christians. One of the stains of America is our racial sin over the last 400 years. It's so deeply embedded of it in us that we cannot get away from it. It just is what it is. It's a consequence of the fall. And we're taught in our culture because we're, we've, we've so hurt people and marginalized people over the centuries. We're taught that in order to make up for our sinful racial heritage that race is our deepest identity. And it's not our deepest identity. It's just not. If we are in Christ, that is our deepest identity, deeper than race. We can be fiercely proud of our race. I'm not ashamed that I'm white. I love it. Like, I, the thing I love about talking with Ed as an African-American man, he's, he's told me, he's like, look, I want to raise my family to be deeply proud of our racial heritage. But I know Ed well enough to know that his deepest identity is his loyalty to Christ. He's a proud African-American man. He's a prouder follower of Christ. That's good. That's gospel. That's what James is getting at here. Our, our first loyalty is to Christ. It's deeper than a political party. If you align yourself with one political depart- party today, if you're registered with one party, and that party moves away from the gospel, guess what? You need to unregister from that party. Your deepest identity and loyalty needs to be to Christ and the gospel. It needs to be deeper even than your family. Our family roots get so deep in us and our struggles of our family, it needs to be deeper than that. I'm an American, southern, white, mangrum Christian. No, that is not the narrative. I am a follower of Christ who happens to be a citizen of America, born in the south, with white skin, Part of a family with a dad who didn't know his dad, but his dad's name was Mangrum, uh, with a mom whose family name was Sanders. That, those are great markers for who I am. But they, all of those identities together at best would be 49% of who I am. 
When James says to the 12 tribes of dispersion, what he's saying is your deepest identity has to be who you are in Christ and we have to adjust our life accordingly and repent of any idolatrous identities. It's not that the identities are bad. It's that they become ultimate. And when a created thing becomes an ultimate thing, it becomes a sinful thing. And we've got to be really, really, really careful with that. Peter Scazzaro wrote Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, Emotionally Healthy Church, Emotionally Healthy Leader. Uh, he's a brilliant uh, follower of Christ and pastor. And one of the things Pete Scazzaro tells a story about is he got paid to go to this church in Korea and preached a weekend on emotionally healthy spirituality. And part of emotionally healthy spirituality is like looking deeply at your family tree and seeing what's rooted in that. And one thing apparently in Korean culture, it's not true of American culture, he tells the story, is in Korean culture, the, the mom of the husband has a huge say in how the marriage is going to go. Uh, I don't know if it's like this in other cultures, maybe it is, but Peter Scazzaro uh, is a gospel-formed man, and he believes the gospel principle about marriage, that when someone gets married, they leave husband, they leave mother and father and become one unit, husband and wife. And so the Korean pastors get together with Scazzaro right before he goes, and they say, look, we love what you're about to talk about, but in our culture, the mother-in-law gets a say in the marriage. And Scazzaro takes the check that they've given him and says, I'm going to go ahead and set this right here on the table and I'm going to go ahead and get on a plane and get out of here. And they're like, what are you saying? And he says, you don't understand the gospel. The gospel is deeper than your Korean cultural preferences. The gospel says that when the Lord and the scriptures tell us to do one thing and our culture tells us to do another thing, only one of those is taking a knee. And Scazzaro says, I'm out. I mean, laid thousands of dollars on the table. They had flown him from Manhattan to, from New York to Korea. And he says, I'm out. And they changed their mind and they, they succumbed understanding that he wasn't trying to share an American preference for how couples are individualistic. He was sharing a scriptural preference rooted in Genesis 1 and 2 when our, um, when any, lesser identities and loyalties meet the gospel. The gospel has to win. It just does. And it's not that we abandon all those things. God is not colorblind. He made us color different, race different, region different, nationality different. That makes us a beautiful tapestry of what he's doing in the world. We don't negate those or pretend that they don't exist. We just keep them in their proper context. Number three, we are a part of a scattered nation. Now, this is my favorite part of this message. To the 12 tribes of a dispersion, he's treating them like they're one thing, though they're living in multiple different regions of the Roman Empire. We have more in common, we are more family with Christians in China, in Nigeria, in Iran, in Brazil, in Germany, than we do with Americans, with fellow in search your region. How many of you are New Englanders by birth? How many of you are uh, Midwesterners by birth, like... How many, anybody from the Rust Belt by birth? Any Rust Belters? You from the Rust Belt? Okay, well, you from the Rust Belt. You from Michigan originally? Yeah. Um, how many of you are from the South? A few of you are from the South originally. Yep, we hear it in our accents. It just is what it is. Uh, listen, you have more in common with Christians. On, like, take the globe, close your eyes, spin it like this. Put your hand down, hope you don't land in the ocean. No matter where you are, if you land on a country, you have more in common with a follower of Christ from that place than you do with your next door neighbor or your grandma or with the person that you most deeply identify with accent-wise. Our deepest identity is with the people of God in Christ. It's not people who look like me, vote like me, talk like me. It's not more, it's deeper than Baptist. Uh, somebody told us the other day, like, we didn't know this was a Baptist church. We were like, we never tried to hide it. We never tried to hide it. But it, being a Baptist, like baptizing, dunking believers, I don't care about a denomination. I really don't. My deepest identity is with followers of Christ. I feel deep brotherhood with people who are of completely different denominations. Our church has churches that have invested in us for four and a half years who are of other denominations. You know why? Because our brotherhood's in Christ, not in a denomination. 
uh, even more, I have more in common with a Christian in Nigeria or Brazil or China than I do with Mangrums or Sanders or Nailers. Let me tell you a funny story about Lydia Edwards. I, if you don't know Lydia Edwards, she is our um, city council person for Boston. And uh, I met her one time and she goes, what's your name? Nat and I met her. I said, J.D. Mangrum. And she goes, what? And I was like, yeah. She goes, well, my people are from Arkansas and my people are Mangrums. And I, she goes, my grandma was a mangrove. And I'm like, all right, so we're cousins, okay. Uh, if you don't know, Lydia Edwards is African-American. And I love that, like, her grandma and my grandma on my dad's side share the same last name. Listen, that's great. Mangrove's not who I am. I'm a follower of Jesus. And if Lydia Edwards follows Jesus, Lydia Edwards and I have more in common because the blood of Jesus runs through her veins and the blood of Jesus runs through my veins more than somebody who had a last name of Mangrum sometime in the past. That's just how it works. We have more in common because of our Christianity. I love the, um, the Lord. Uh, there's different names for the Lord in, in the Old Testament. Like the Lord's personal name is Yahweh or Jehovah is one way that we've heard it translated. So Yahweh is the Lord's personal name. And so like Yahweh, Yireh, Jehovah Jireh, my provider. One of my favorite names for the Lord is Yahweh uh, Nice or Nisi. The Lord is my banner. In the Old Testament, there was a time where God's people were going to war and the banner that they took in front of them said, the Lord, our banner. Listen, as Christians, the Lord is our banner. When we go into life, the flag that we fly together is the flag that Jesus is our Lord. Jesus leads us out of this space into our community. Jesus is our flag. Jesus is our banner. It is a white flag of surrender, that we have surrendered, that he is our king, that his kingdom is our kingdom, and we have pledged our deepest allegiance there. Number four, the law of the land as scattered kingdom people is what James is all about. Remember, James is written before Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew 5 through 7 is the Sermon on the Mount. It's where Jesus talks about what it looks like to live practically in the kingdom. James is almost like James recalling Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, but it hasn't been written down yet. And he's writing and he's saying, okay, to the, to the people of God scattered in the Roman Empire, what I'm about to tell you is what the, the, the Sermon on the Mount is going to look like in the Roman Empire. It's what the book of Proverbs is going to look like in the Roman Empire. It's what the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy are going to look like as you live them out with Jesus as your Messiah in the Roman Empire. James is how kingdom people operate. And then finally, let me ask you a question. Fifth point. You ever feel out of place in this world? <laughs> a couple hands shot up pretty quick. You ever been at a party... And just felt like you weren't in the right place as a Christian? Have you ever gotten a trophy or a diploma as a Christian and thought, is that it? Like, has this world ever gone to offer you something, but it didn't offer you enough? Have you ever gone on a holiday or a vacation and thought, is this it? I have a theory, by the way, this is not in the notes, it's free that churches need to beef up our counseling ministries come September, October, November, because after 15 months of people being locked in and locked down, people are taking vacations and spending stimmies right now like nothing before. And I think once we get to September 1st, people are going to go, hmm, that didn't provide the feeling I thought it was going to feel after 15 months. Hmm. Having that new television or taking that vacation or having that Instagram post didn't do for me what I thought it would do. And the reason for that is we were made to be citizens of another kingdom and nothing in this kingdom is ever going to satisfy us on the level that the good, the least in this other kingdom is going to satisfy us. And so God's people will feel out of place in this world. If you ever feel out of place, good. If you ever feel dissatisfied with the best that this world can offer, good. Good. That is a sign of the work of the Holy Spirit in you. Hopefully it's not discontentment. Hopefully it's a growing contentment in God's kingdom and understanding that this world cannot provide hope and meaning. God's kingdom, our home country, our region, 
our uh, God's kingdom and our home country, our region, our race, our family, our culture, even our denomination have conflicting values. There's things about being American that just don't jive with the kingdom of Jesus at all. There's things about being a Democrat that don't jive with the kingdom of Jesus. There's things about being a Republican that don't jive with being in the kingdom of Jesus. There's things about being a New Englander that don't jive with the kingdom of Jesus. There's things about being from the South or the Midwest or the Northwest that don't jive with the kingdom of Jesus. There's things about insert your favorite country on the world where you will go live if you, if you didn't live here. And I promise you, there will be things there that don't jive with the kingdom of Jesus. And in my family, there's a lot of things that don't jive with the kingdom of Jesus. And the Holy Spirit is systematically eradicating them, cutting them out like cancer that they are, and conforming me to the image of Christ. I was talking with my mom this week, and I go, you know... Our grandma and grandpa gave us a lot of good stuff. One thing they did not give us was the ability to do conflict well. We do conflict so poorly as a family, it is laughable. And guess what? If I say, well, you know what? That's just how we are because uh, Harriet Sanders' blood is running through my veins, so I'm just going to be passive aggressive. No, 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 no. At nine years old, when I gave my life to Christ, I got a different DNA. I was made a new person, and the blood of Jesus began to run through my veins. And I don't get to say that's just how I am anymore because of my grandma or where I'm from. The blood of Jesus gets authority when there are conflicting values. The deeper I go, the more foreign I feel in another place. The deeper you go, the more foreign you will feel in this world. It's going to feel weird. It's going to feel weird. The gospel is winning when you feel out of place. I want to tell you that. And then we get to a place, Scripture says, where we are ambassadors for Christ. An ambassador. See, it gets to a point where we don't just hold two passports. There comes a moment where we are ambassadors for Christ. We recognize that the Lord has sent us strategically into this country, this planet, this region, this family, this what denomination, this whatever. He sent us in there as an ambassador to represent him. To the 12 tribes of dispersion, greetings. James says, look, what I'm about to give you is going to tell you how you are going to live in Alexandria, Egypt how you are going to live in Libya, how you are going to live in Rome, how you're going to live in Antioch or Ephesus or Athens. This is going to tell you how you are going to do it. You are not a citizen of that place. You are a citizen of heaven. You are an ambassador for me in that nation. So I want to encourage you. Here's a couple of homeworks. If you are a person who likes to leave church with something to do, here's something to do. One, I want to encourage you in the next two weeks, by two weeks from now, to read all of the book of James. Okay? It's a homework. Read all of the book. I think it's five chapters. So it's not super long. It'll take you about 30 minutes if you sit down to read it. I want to challenge you to read all of the book of James. Read it just like you would read any book or a newspaper story. Just read it right through. You don't have to dive deep. You don't have to spend 10 minutes on every verse. Just read it. Start with James, servant of God. And the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes of dispersion, greetings, count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of various kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith will produce steadfastness. Just start reading it and read it all the way to the end till you get to the last verse of chapter 5. I want to encourage you. Uh, and here's how you know when God is doing something. Nikki has led her small group for the last few months, and her sort of summer homework for the women of the Word group was read the book of James. And so I was telling Nat the other day about this. And I was like, we're going to challenge everybody to read the book of James. She goes, ha, funny. Nikki just challenged us all to read the book of James as well. So I would encourage you, read the book of James, okay? When you see each other next Sunday on the 11th, look at somebody and go, hey, did you read the book of James? What stood out? All right? I want you all to read the book of James. And your homework is read it and then ask somebody, did you read the book of James? All right? So if you're one that forgets to do your homework, go home today and read the book of James. Read the whole thing. I want you to be ready. I want you to know what we're going to be reading. If, you want, if you're an extra credit nerd, a suck up, if that's part of your identity, I want to encourage you to listen to or read the book of Acts you'll get a real sense of the culture that James is being written into. And that might help you with the timeline. And then finally, your last homework, 
I want to encourage you on the 4th, or if any of you are Canadians, on the 1st, or whatever holiday you may be celebrating in the next 14 days, I want to encourage you to celebrate it well. But celebrate it as a member of another kingdom. It's sitting home. We live in the middle of some amazing history and some tough history. I invited you earlier to go on the 17th on the spiritual history walking tour. I want to remind you of that. When we go see that. It's a reminder, the beauty of that, whether you're standing at Faneuil Hall or at the Irish Potato Family Memorial or the uh, Boston Common or the Granary Burial Ground, the reminder is that there have been people in our city for 400 years who are part of a different kingdom living here as ambassadors. And God used them in the midst of all the American political stuff. God used them to be part of some incredible kingdom stuff. Remember on the 4th when you're eating a steak, a hot dog, and a hamburger on the same day, right? Like, because that's why the forefathers fought was for us to eat all different kinds of meat. Remember that our citizenship and our kingdom have a different set of family values, okay? We're part of a different, deeper family. Let me pray. Uh, God, we love you. Lord, I thank you uh, to look at these people who sit in this room and some of them are white, some of them are African-American, some of them are Spanish, some of them are um, Spanish by way of Puerto Rico, some of them are Spanish by way of Central America. And God, if the blood of Christ runs through our veins, that is the deepest family we will ever experience. Our race, we're not... We're not ashamed of it. It's part of who we are, but it doesn't tell the best story. Our region we're from is powerful. Our nation of origin is powerful. It doesn't tell the deepest story. Our denomination, our family, our, our friends, our, even, even down to like the clothes we wear or uh, the type of cell phone that we carry, or all this stuff, these all can become these little identity markers, but they don't dictate on the deepest level who we are. If we've been part of your, become part of your family uh, through faith, like James, who didn't, who was Jesus' half brother and didn't believe, but then came to deep faith in you, if we become part of your family by faith uh, through grace, then our deepest identity, the twelve tribes scattered of a dispersion, is because of who we are in Christ. I pray we would fight relentlessly for that. You know, I, in the presence of my brothers and sisters sitting in this room, God, I pray that Christ Church Charlestown would become a truly multi-ethnic church with multi-ethnic uh, leadership and, multi, um, and, and different races and cultures on the stage every Sunday, different races and cultures and heritages, um, preaching your word. Uh, community groups, small groups that are so diverse that it's um, that it requires work because when we are just with people who think and act and we're raised like us, God, that it's just not a lot of uh, not a lot of friction and tension there. But God, I pray that uh, on Sunday and in our leadership and in our small groups and as we serve this community and where our money and where our time and. Uh, and who shows up to serve, God, I pray all of those would be a multi-ethnic church and that it would bear testimony to this verse that we would be the 12 tribes of dispersion, one people of faith living in this city as ambassadors, celebrating our differences, but the fact that our deepest identity is in Christ. And that is a deeper identity than anything else. Lord, I want to thank you. for people in this room who have uh, graciously treated me like family because we are family in Christ. God, I want to thank you in this room that um, there have been preferences that some of us have uh, laid down to be part of Christ Church Charlestown and seeing this church planted in this neighborhood. Well, we repent. We're human. We repent of times where lesser identities take, um, 
where lesser identities jump on the throne of our hearts and uh, try to perform a coup on King Jesus. Father, I thank you that you are a good king, that Jesus uh, is the mighty warrior we follow into battle, that the flag we fly under is the flag, a white flag of surrender, and that we are part of our greater kingdom. Lord, I could just sit with you right now and talk with you all day about this. I just pray it would get deep down into our bones. Lord, our greatest strength is a church. Our greatest days uh, will be found not in us trying to be colorblind or act like our uh, differences of whatever aren't there. Our greatest days as a church are going to lie in us uh, just owning that stuff, celebrating it, understand that you're the maker, that God, that you are a creative God, and that, um, that we're your family together. Lord, if there's anyone here who doesn't know you, God, we can think of being a Christian as most of my friends who aren't Christians, uh, God, they think of being a Christian as so boring, just going to church and becoming a good person. Lord, I love the gospel truth today, that if we turn from our sin and trust in the work of Christ like James did, then we become part of the most diverse and beautiful family of all time. Lord, in our city that loves being so diverse, we love diversity on some level, on some arrogant sort of level so often, a broken level, we, we love it and we can celebrate it almost as an end unto itself at times, Lord. God, what a compelling gospel message that the people of God are the most diverse people that we have the most in common, that we don't minimize our race or our background or all that stuff, but God, we celebrate it and understand that Jesus died for this beautiful tapestry of people, this beautiful mosaic of people. Jesus, if there's anybody in this room who's never been part of your family, help them understand that becoming a Christian, trusting in you, is not trying to become like church people, but it's becoming part of a a king and a kingdom and a family that this world cannot compete with. And I pray that they will come joyfully running into your family. We love you, God. Be honored by, I pray, Lord, that you take this stuff and you'll uh, let it land well in people's hearts. In Christ's name, amen. Amen.